Good afternoon. Welcome. I am Dr. Jill Brooks, Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. First Healthcare Compliance is happy to be helping healthcare providers around the country save time and money while reducing compliance risks with our single source solution. Our team is available to you 9 a.m. until 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please call us if you have any questions or would like to schedule a quick demo of our software. We are happy to bring different experts to you every month with our noontime webinars. Today we have Vu Do, Vice President of Compliance at PreCheck, discussing five essentials for your screening checklist. Vu? Thank you, Jill. I'm delighted to join you and excited about this opportunity to share important information about background screening essentials. So as Jill just stated, I'm with PreCheck and we're a national pre-employment screening firm specializing in the healthcare industry. And in my role, I spend a good amount of time educating clients on background check compliance and really studying the larger regulatory debates and legal outcomes that impact the industry and impact employer screening practices. And it's really from this vantage point that I share my list of top five with you. So because we only have about 30 minutes or so before us, I'm, going to go, I'm just going to jump straight in. And we're going to look at, take a look at what we're going to cover today. So if you're running background checks currently, the first step is to develop a screening policy if you don't already have one. And then if you already have one in place, it's probably a good point to review it. Secondly, if you haven't heard of the EEOC's enforcement guidance on the use of criminal convictions, we'll talk about it, its significance. Next, with a sharp rise in litigation activity and class action suits alleging Fair Credit Reporting Act violations, it's important for us to review our legal duties as employers. And then beyond the federal FCRA, we'll take a look at how state laws affect you if you conduct or use background checks. And lastly, given all the legal and regulatory requirements thrust upon you, you'll definitely need a comprehensive HR policy to ensure dem and demonstrate compliance. So without further ado, we'll get started. I want to start with this first topic of a screening policy because I get the following questions all of the time from my employer clients. Questions like, what's a background check program? And then, what should be included in my background check policy? Or, VU, can I have a sample policy? And then also I get, what am I supposed to do with the result of a report? So I put together the following list so you can consider what should be included in your screening policy. So let me just say it's by no means an exhaustive policy or list but it should get you well on your way. So what are the first things we need to consider? We need to be absolutely clear in our policy how the background check is going to be conducted, internally or via third party. The majority of employers in the U.S. use third party background screening companies because, simply put, they are the experts. It's what they do day in and day out. So it makes sense to rely on their expertise, right? In your policy, you should specify that if your state requires that a particular criminal history search needs to be conducted for specific health care positions, that needs to be stated in the policy. Um, depends on the state, depends on the source, and that ties into the next bullet point. So what are the sources being searched? Is it a state police search? Are you conducting county record searches? Are you using a state repository? Um, these two items are connected. Next, and I think very, very important is what are you going to check individual component-wise and how far back are you going? 
Um, so I'll go to this list and I'll take a second to talk to you in detail about what this means. Okay, so in a standard background check, you're going to see a social trace being conducted. Um, if you're running criminal history, which is probably the fundamental reason why you're running a background check, what's going to be included in that criminal history search? Are you running state searches, county searches, federal level criminal record searches, a national record repository search? Um, you most likely are going to run a sex offender registry search. In healthcare, we know we're going to be searching for sanction and exclusion lists. Also, depending on the position, are you looking into employment and education verification, license verification, et cetera? Now, if you're running background checks for the first time or if you're considering a policy, um, there may be, due to a lack of knowledge and experience, um, some difficulty establishing this list. This is what your screening provider is for. They should be able to help you here in order to state what they're seeing as a standard in the industry um, or recommend some practices. But ultimately, those decisions rest with you as the employer. You will very likely have to consult with either your general counsel, um, definitely your HR leadership, but potentially outside counsel to come up with the type of screening that needs to be conducted um, as a risk mitigation tool for your firm. Okay? And beyond that, you need to determine how frequently you're going to conduct the checks. Typically beyond time of hire or appointment, um, we're seeing a trend in running these background checks on an annual basis um, at a more, at a less invasive level, if you will, um, or for some organizations every two years, or if we're talking about physicians and practitioners at time of reappointment. Um, so frequency, you need to establish that. You need to be very aware of the compliance requirements associated with each process. We'll go over them in depth um, as the as, this, as our presentation continues. Um, and some of the things that you need to consider are furnishing certain required or proper notices, sending copies of the reports, um, your contact obligations or communica communication obligations with the consumer who in this sense or in this situation is the applicant um, or the employee. What's very important for you to provide some consistency in your policy is establishing what constitutes adverse information for each category of the background check report. Um, I emphasize this because this is how you establish consistency in your review process when you get the background check reports back, right? So when you say, okay, each category of information, what do you mean, Boo? It means in criminal history, if you say we are going to review um, and, and consider at great length anything that comes back with a criminal record, okay? And then uh, when it comes to these types of violations at these categories, whether they be a degree of felony or misdemeanor or what have you, within this time frame, we will either not proceed with a hire or we will consider it on a case-by-case -case basis. Or if it's a type of criminal history that's unrelated to the position, it's happened long ago, it will not impact our decision. So that's an example of criminal history. When it comes to sanction screening, you know, what do you consider adverse there? When it comes to employment, what's a discrepancy? Is it, you know, they said they worked in January and yet the records show they, they started in April. Is that too much of a discrepancy for you? Um, when it comes to education verification, if they say they completed and received that degree, but they have not, they've only enrolled. Um, so you need to take the time to establish and define each category of information and what you consider adverse. Adverse meaning um, what would lead you to make a decision whereby you do not hire that individual or you terminate an existing employee. Okay, so we'll move forward. 
Um, the next section will talk about the EEOC's individualized assessment um, within its enforcement guidance. But just know that your screening pro program should incorporate your responsibilities vis-a-vis -vis the EEOC's guidance. Um, and then I, I recommend being very absolutely explicitly clear about who within your organization handles escalations and final decision making, and then also who bears the responsibility of communicating and interacting with applicants when there is a dispute of information on a background check report. Um, I think it's more important than ever to do that when you're dealing with a very large and spread out organization. Let's say you have facilities in multiple states. Um, I'm seeing a move more and more. You know, I wouldn't say it's dramatic, but I'm seeing more of a trend when um, large health systems decide to centralize their decision-making process and review process. And what that does is that ensures that there are only a handful of individuals um, who are looking at information and making informed decisions and able to document them consistently and able to reach consistent decisions. Um, it really limits any um, potential you know, discrepancies in the way that an organization makes a decision. That is to say, sometimes you'll see in a health system, you know, someone, an, an applicant in this situation, a consumer applying for a position, let's say, with Hospital A, being denied employment, you know, in a matter of months, reapplying at Hospital B, a sister facility, and being able to get the job. Um, so there, on a corporate level, potentially, there's not um, a way to universally or, or centrally, you know, apply a hiring decision. Um, so that's why we're seeing that greater shift. Not that we're advocating, um, I'm just communicating with you or sharing with you some of the trends we're seeing in the health community. Okay, next, your policy should address any rules around documentation and record keeping. Um, indicate any time frames for responding to applicants, for your decision making. You know, all of these things really hold your organization to a standard. And um, in any situation where there's going to be an investigation or there are some questions about your policy or process, um, you can you know, be confident and rest assured that you have a sound policy. Um, it's written, um, it's well documented, and then it also helps you to audit your own, your own process because there's an established policy. And then lastly, when there's an appeal pro make sure that you have an appeal process once, you once a decision, of course in this situation, a negative decision is reached. You know, how does the applicant or the consumer get back in touch with you, with whom, what department handles it? Um, and then what's the back and forth? And we'll go over, we'll go into greater detail about some of the logistic considerations in some of the future session, sections, okay? So that's what I have, and it may seem a little bit overwhelming as far as what I just cover, covered in the last few slides, but I think a good starting point, if you don't already have a, a, um, a policy similar to this one in place, is to simply work through the checklist that I offered before you in the last few slides. Work your way through them, you know, insert it. It's just like the skeleton, if you will, and you start adding flesh to it, fleshing it out um, to create, you know, a body of a policy. And then from there, um, you actually have something that's pretty well established. Um, mind you, you're going to be working with a number of parties and individuals as you start to flesh out this policy. Okay? Now we're going to move on now to the significance of the EEOC's enforcement guidance. Um, when we talk about background checks and compliance, you know, we talk about certain regulators. We'll go over the FTC and the CFPB and then their role with enforcing the Fair Credit Reporting Act in, that next, in the next section. But um, as of late, you know, very recently, we're hearing a lot of activity coming from the EEOC um, about its views around employers' use of background checks, and it's for a specific reason. 
Okay. Now, the EUC, two years ago now, a little over two years ago at this point, because they released it back in April, um, released an update to an existing enforcement guidance. And before that, it had been in play. It's a two-page memo for several decades. It was pretty straightforward. But it changed significant, significantly with the release of the guidance. That's now around 50 pages um, and significantly harder to to, to understand as you know, we have legal counsel grappling with it from different organizations saying, hey, if we're contending with this 50-page document, what are small business owners doing? So um, I won't go into the details of it, but there has been and remains quite a bit of criticism um, around the EEOC's enforcement guidance. Now, let me be crystal clear. The EEOC is not discouraging the practice of employers running background checks. The EEOC itself runs the background checks and pretty invasive ones, pretty comprehensive ones, um, on its own applicants. And, and that has come into play um, when it comes to criticism about that organization. But what I want to talk to you about today is its position vis-a-vis -vis background checks and employers. So the EUC recognizes and has identified that um, consistent with one of its key goals is removing discriminatory barriers to employment. And it, and it has identified background checks as potentially being a pretty heavy barrier. I know um, last year when I attended one of the um, EUC sessions in my own city that one of the field um, officers was very clear to say, you know, we're backlogged, we're behind, but when we get a complaint or a call come in that identifies potential violations with regard to background checks, that goes to the top of our list. So it's, it's a pretty high precedent for them. So be aware of that. Now you may be slightly confused about what the EUC's position is. Um, and it basically says, look, employers, if you have a policy about background checks and it appears to be facially neutral, right, meaning it's not discriminatory um, on its face, it, it's, it's, the practices look very sound, but if the impact of that is that it's excluding or it's um, limiting certain protected classes, then it, it's going to argue the theory of disparate impact. And that's going to be in violation of Title VII, right, of the Equal Rights Act of 1960, or the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So the EUC says, based on our argument that African American and Hispanic males are arrested and incarcerated at a disproportionately higher rate than Caucasians, if you have a neutral policy, but the impact is that you are affecting African American and Hispanic males or other protected classes, we take issue with that. Now, how do you get around that? The EUC says, well, employers, you can get around that if you establish job relatedness and business necessity in your background check, and if you do something um, called conducting individualized assessments. Now, the individualized assessment is not new. Okay, That's not a new requirement, and we'll review that in the next slide. But before I go any further, I'd like to talk to you about the easiest way to get started if you haven't, up until this point, heard about the EEOC's focus on background checks, and if you've done nothing up until this point, this is how you get started. I mean, we're just going to focus on the best practice points that it laid out in the guidance itself, and there are several of them. So here's an overview. First and foremost, employers, ensure that you do not have in your existing policies any blanket exclusions with regard to criminal history, meaning you don't say ABC Hospital will not consider you for employment if you have any felony convictions, or we do not hire anyone with misdemeanor convictions in the last five years. So there should be none of that in your, in your policy, no blanket exclusions, okay? Second, there is a strong recommendation that you train 
your decision makers for Title VII, okay? Third, develop a policy, specifically a narrowly tailored one, and I'll go over briefly what that narrowly tailored policy should look like or should include. Next, and anyone in HR would be vastly, in HR or compliance would be very, very familiar with this, with this requirement, and that's to document robustly. Um, and just beyond the documentation of having a sound policy, um, you need to find yourself documenting your decisions, justifying those decisions. So should you be contested um, via a complaint through any of these organizations, you know, you can recall all your considerations when you made a decision not to move forward with hiring an individual. The EUC also says, employers, we recommend that you not ask about criminal history during the employment application process. What that means is when someone is filling out an employment application, don't include that question about have you ever been convicted of a crime. The recommendation is to defer that, um, and I'll go over in greater detail when it should be posed according to the EOC. And then also when you do pose this inquiry, limit it in scope. Um, this I've found to be incredibly hard to do. <laughs> Frankly, I haven't seen any employers be able to phrase this question in a limited fashion. Um, essentially what it means is this. If someone is applying for a position, let's say they are applying for a nurse position, and um, in your policy you don't have any prohibitions or restrictions around a nurse, let's say, being convicted of, I don't know, um, shoplifting like over seven years ago. So if you pose a question about have you ever been convicted of a crime, that's too broad for the EUC. So you should pose um, a question about criminal history, but of only asking or requiring about relevant crimes. That's very hard to do um, if someone is applying for multiple positions, and it can be very cumbersome in the phrasing. So how would you exactly go about that? I'm really not sure. I haven't seen any forms where someone will, where an employer is going to ask um, someone who's applying for a position to say, have you ever been convicted of XYZ crimes? I, I've, I've not seen that come into play yet. Okay, and then lastly, your policy or the best practice is to perform an individualized assessment. This is going to be the saving grace. If you ever get investigated or there's a potential threat of litigation, your, um, the fact that you perform individualized assessments and that you document them soundly is going to be able to um, potentially, you know, um, limit any type of litigation. So we'll, go, we'll talk about that now in terms of your, the considerations for individualized assessment. What does that mean? So it's based on the green factors, and it's not new. You know, I mentioned that earlier. The green factors um, are unchanged from, from you know, decades ago when the EUC first instructed employers on what to do with conviction records when they get them back. And these are the three considerations. The first is when you get criminal history back, you need to consider the nature and the gravity of the offense, right? What happened in that crime and how serious was it? How much time has passed since it occurred? And thirdly, how does it relate to the position the person is applying for? Okay. Now, beyond that, in the most recent enforcement guidance um, issued two years ago, the EUC is adding a number of items to the list of considerations. It's now saying, okay, employers, beyond the green factors, we also think you should take a look at what were the facts surrounding the offense, right? If you just take a look at a charge or an offense or a record, that may not mean anything to you. Um, for example, if someone was charged with criminal mischief, what does that mean? Does that mean scaling a neighbor's fence? Or was it something a little more egregious? You know, so they want you to get into the details of what really occurred. 
um, they want you to consider the number of total convictions. Was it an anomaly? Is it um, out of someone's character to have done this? They want you to establish maybe some facts around this. They want you to consider how old that individual was at the time of conviction. You know, we all know that some crimes occur when someone is young and stupid, and now that they are professionals, maybe it doesn't relate or doesn't speak to their character anymore. Um, at the same time, when a crime, depending on what it is, occurs when someone is significantly older, um, and it's again, out of character, what were the conditions that led to that, potentially. So they want you to give greater consideration to, to a lot of factors and that go beyond the green factors. Also, it wants you to establish some type of evidence of similar work post-conviction. This could potentially speak to someone's stability in employment. And then consider their entire work history, the length of employment pre- and post-conviction, any rehab efforts um, pertaining to education or training or any rehabilitative efforts, and then lastly, um, if anyone can provide character references. So you see that the list for considerations for individualized assessment has grown significantly. And it, it, this is great for the applicant, but the reality is it's going to impose a greater burden for the employer, um, not to discourage the employer from doing it. Uh, and it's good to have that checklist, but it's going to be a little more work for them. So you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, I can potentially move forward. Sounds pretty easy. I'll have that checklist. Um, but then where do I go from here? So earlier I talked about the, the policy and how it has to be quote unquote narrowly tailored. So one of the things that you should consider developing is a hiring matrix. What that would help you do um, as an employer is it would help you to establish or ensure some consistency in reaching your hiring decisions. Um, this may sound a little confusing because I just talked about the individualized assessment, right? Um, and that's pretty much engaging your applicant and saying, okay, well, we're expecting to see this crime that you disclosed on the background check report. We see it now. Hmm, why don't you go ahead and tell us or provide some documentation about why we should move forward with the hire? And they may be able to make an argument and say, well, this occurred five years ago. I don't believe it you know, relates to the position I'm applying for. Um, here's some evidence of my rehabilitative efforts. You know, here's my neighbor or here's my former supervisor who can speak to, um, you know, the quality of my work, so on and so forth. That's the individualized assessment. Um, and that seems highly individualized, which is what the EUC is trying to promote. But beyond that, you, in, in HR, we're so ingrained, and even in, in compliance, we're so ingrained um, that we have a commitment towards consistent practice and consistent treatment. So understand that you have sort of dueling, dual or competing responsibilities here. Um, and obligations here. But let's take a look at what the hiring matrix will help you do. If you develop a matrix that lists the positions in your organization and establishes and defines all the essential job functions for those positions, and then for those positions and categories of positions, you identify types of crimes or categories of crimes that you believe demonstrate unfitness for a job based on relevance, now remember job relatedness, then that will help you to get on your way to knowing how to treat results, right? Beyond that, you need to provide rationalization for your decisions. Um, in your policy or in your hiring matrix, if you will, also determine the duration of the exclusion. So what all this means, and if I can give you an, an illustration, let's say in your, um, in your hospital, you say, okay, well, I have positions that are patient-facing. They include nurses, they include you know, CNAs, they include um, you know, a therapist, and for these positions, they perform XYZ functions, 
and you say, well, because there is patient interaction and these patients are vulnerable populations, um, because there is potential interaction with um, an individual's, you know, material possession, um, because there is sometimes it's going to be a lack of oversight where there will not be another party present, we feel that these types of categories should require further scrutiny. Categories, scrutiny, excuse me, categories like, you know, um, assault, um, like theft. Um, you know, sex crimes, yada, yada, yada. So all, all of this is taking place in terms of when you're putting together your matrix. And this is essentially where you in HR or in compliance or both come together with um, your counsel to develop this matrix. And I, I specifically use the word categories of crimes because I think one of the very um, difficult limiting things to do is to specify the offense. Um, because a lot of employers are operating out of different states and, you know, crimes um, and offenses and penal codes change. So you don't want to be beholden to having to update that continually. So if you, you know, deal in, you know, violent crimes or sex-related crimes or alcohol and drug-related crimes, that may be easier for you to, um, to work with, if you will. So by having a matrix and identifying stop points, you can say, okay, well, we got these this background check um, report back, and we see that in our policy or in our matrix, we specify that if someone is in this position um, and they have this crime, well, it's not going to impact our decision. We can move forward. This is for a nurse, and this is a shoplifting crime from 15 years ago. It has no impact. We're, she's well on her way. You know, we will move forward. But if it's a crime for someone who's working with a patient and it's an assault within the last five years, then potentially we're not going to move forward or if it falls within the five to seven or eight year category, we're going to sit back and reconvene as a group, um, ask for more information, ask for details, so on and so forth. So your matrix, the one that you establish, helps you to navigate the decision-making process and to do it with consistency. And what it does is it builds in that individualized assessment. Okay? And that's why it's important. This next slide um, I devote to talking to um, HR individuals make decisions because it goes beyond or is considered beyond um, what the EEOC actually talks about or addresses in the enforcement guidance. It's, it's absent of this. So I made it a point to put this before employers to say, okay, let's make these following logistical considerations, right, because it's not covered in the guidance. Um, the first of which is how will you instruct your applicants to submit supporting documentation, okay? When um, someone is sitting before you, during the application, I'm sorry, during the interview process and says, okay, I want to disclose to you, uh, you when you run the background check on me, you're going to find the following crime. You run the background check, you see it comes back, um, and then at that point, how do you communicate with them that if you want to provide more documentation, you can do so at this point? Do you do it via email? Do you call them? Do you issue a letter? How does that impact the timeline? So on and so forth. Stuff that you think about and establish well in advance when you have a policy. Um, also define who in your organization is going to collect that information, and then who owns a review and decision-making process. Um, how do you communicate to the applicant when it comes to follow-up? How does this fit into your adverse action process? I'll go over that shortly in the next set of slides, what adverse action means. And then once you get all that information back, how do you corroborate that, or how do you validate those materials that they give you? Do you just accept them as, at face value? Um, this may be where you have to communicate with your background screening firm to help you um, arrive at safely, you know, authenticating that information, if you will. 
And in that last point, you should articulate your expectations or your process with your screening provider if you have one, so they understand how to assist you um, in streamlining your process. Okay. I'm going to just pause really briefly here to say that um, I, a lot of my material is text dense, um, but you have you're going to have access to um, the slides, you know, at the end of the presentation. So just know that you can always come back to consult them. Okay. Now here's just a quick process at a glance to walk you through. Um, so, of course, the EUC says develop a comprehensive policy, um, a narrowly tailored one, and then remember on your employment application, don't ask about criminal history. At the interview stage, you know, or post conditional offer, that's when you can ask about criminal history. Then you run the background check. Um, while you're running the background check, you should know that you're performing a targeted screening and that you consider the green factors. Again, what are the green factors? Nature of the crime time that has elapsed, how long ago did it happen, and then how does it relate to the job, okay? After you get the criminal history back, perform an individualized assessment, you know, in that individualized assessment, engage the client for other materials, have a conversation, let them um, be able to talk about that past crime and be able to talk to you about how they feel it relates to um, the position they're applying for. Then you make your decision and you can, in that process, accept any supporting documentation you also have to verify that information. If they do give you and submit anything further, you make your final decision, and along the way you document. But um, you need to be, especially if you are making an adverse decision, you don't move forward, make sure that you document very clearly and that you include any rationalization about that negative decision. Okay? Now, some final considerations about the EUC. Remain vigilant in your practice, because we, you're dealing with a really active commission that's put this high in their agenda. Okay? I didn't go into any of the criticism about the guidance, and there has been and remains a lot of it. Um, you know, a lot of you know political posturing around it too. Um, a lot of active lawsuits and um, investigations. You know, even even the state of Texas has sued the EOC, as you may have heard. Um, and there was a hearing last week in D.C. Um, about the consideration of the guidance and so on and so forth. So it remains um, in the public eye, and there is criticism still. But despite all of that, and despite that it's ongoing, it's not going anywhere. So yes, you still have to comply. And then this is what I offer you, um, and, and then you can take it for what it's worth. But understand that a background check program is a risk mitigation tool, right? It basically establishes what your risk threshold is for your organization. So in, in healthcare, that's extremely, extremely important, as you can understand, right? So you identify your greatest risk. And then you craft a program that balances that. You say, okay, we work with vulnerable patients. Can we afford to hire someone who is making a claim to us and, and stating that they're reformed, but they have this type of crime? You're balancing that with that individual's rights as an applicant and an employee. And you are balancing that with your obligations to protect your, your clients, your patients, your customers, um, your own other employees, and then the community at large and your reputation. So it's applicants' rights versus patients' rights, uh, put very basically. Okay, so that's really what it comes down to. So you have to make those considerations and, and be very thoughtful about that. Okay, so we're going to move on now to your requirements as employers under the Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act. Okay, um, I'm going to spend time on this because there's been a lot of litigation as of late, and it continues. Um, you you may be aware that the FCRA or the Fair Credit Reporting Act, it's um, enforced by the FTC. 
the Federal Trade Commission, and more recently with Dodd-Frank. It's now enforced by the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, I wanted to be really clear to state that despite the name, and some people consider it a misnomer, the FCRA, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, doesn't apply exclusively to credit checks. It applies to consumer reports, and the consumer reports are background checks, okay? And a background check may or may not include a credit check. The majority of background checks do not include credit checks, just to be clear. And before we go any further, I'm going to spend just a minute getting you familiar with some terminology that exists in the FCRA. Right, so under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, a consumer, um, which is a, a background check is a consumer report. Um, an end user is the employer who orders a consumer report to make an employment decision. The consumer reporting agency is a background screening firm that puts together the consumer report, or in this case, the background check report. The consumer is the applicant or the employee or the subject of the background check report, again, which is the consumer report. And then permissible purpose. Permissible purpose, um, is basically what the law says gives you permission to run the background check. For an employer, it's for employment purposes. And I say employment purposes, and I emphasize that to remind you that um, the word employment in the definition is broadly construed under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and it can refer to employment at, um, at time of hire, or a reappointment, or retention, um, or reassignment, transfer, what have you. And for employment purposes, an employee can be something beyond the technical definition of employee. It can be um, potentially a physician. Um, it can be a volunteer. Um, that employee can be a contractor, right? So just be aware of that, okay? Now, when you are an end user, or in this case, I remind you here, if you're in the employer ordering the background check, you have certain obligations under the Fair Credit Reporting Act before you can start to order background checks. The first is that you have to certify certain things to the background screening firm that's going to furnish a report to you, okay? One of the certifications is that you have a permissible purpose. Again, that purpose is employment, okay? Um, you have two requirements, additionally, and that you're going to have to make a disclosure and you're going to have to re obtain authorization. So make a disclosure to the applicant that you're going to run a background check and you obtain authorization from. And then you also have adverse action responsibilities, and I'll go into those in detail. Okay, so these are your compliance obligations. Now, I'm going to spend some time with disclosure authorization because that's been um, in the news as of late, and there's been a lot of cases, and there remains to be a lot of cases. And we're talking about you know multi-million dollar payouts on employers. Um, your first obligation is to make a disclosure to and obtain consent from the consumer prior to prior to procuring a consumer report. Understand that technically, in the FCRA, the disclosure has to be on a separate document, and it can't be combined with anything. It can only be combined with an authorization. Um, you may not need to know these details, but you need to be really aware, because if you're working with a background screening firm and they say, hey, well, we've got some template disclosures and authorizations for you, make sure that you know what they're giving you, because ultimately, you as the employer, you are held responsible, because in the FCRA, this is your responsibility, not theirs. They may be, you know, um, providing a service whereby it's free to you, but if it's non-compliant, it's going to hurt you, and employers are seeing this. So the most conservative route um, is to say, okay, the disclosure has to be a standalone separate document, okay? Um, really quickly, evergreen language, what is that? That allows you, if properly stated, to continue to run background checks once that person becomes um, your employee. So at time of hire, you may have them run a background check and you've secured authorization and consent from them. If you say, 
for the duration of your employment or for the ter full term of my employment, why am I an employee at ABC Hospital? You know, ABC has the right to procure future background checks from me or consumer reports, yada, yada, yada. That means that you don't have to keep getting the consent every year if you want to run background checks every year. Um, and I also want to point out when it comes to the authorization portion and the consent, the SCRA says this is the only part time when there's an exception to seeking consent. That if what's prompting the investigation is an employee, in, or what's prompting the background check is an employee investigation whereby you suspect there's wrongdoing or a violation of the law or a company policy, you can proceed as the employer to run a background check without informing um, the employee. Okay. So that's one condition whereby you can do it without having to get consent. Because getting consent um, before you do an investigation um, of wrongdoing, it may jeopardize the investigation. Okay. Now, adverse action. This is so critical. We see just a flurry of litigation um, in this area. And this is probably you know, one of the biggest areas where employers get sued because they get it wrong so many times. And I spend a lot of time um, talking to my clients about this and, and going over their duties here because it's very, very important. When you take adverse action based on the content of a consumer report, you have to do the following things. Let's say you get a background check report and you, know, you see that someone's been convicted of homicide. You cannot simply pick up the phone and tell them, you know, don't bother coming back, we're not hiring you. Okay? It's a two-step process. The first step being you have to issue a pre-adverse action notice. That notice has very specific language. This is where, again, your background screening firm um, partner can help you with giving you some of that language. When you send that pre-adverse notice, you have to send it along with a copy of that consumer report that you use to make your decision so that the consumer has a copy, uh, has access to what you use to make your decision. And then along with that, you have to give them a copy of the summary of rights under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. It's a prescribed notice, and you can get it um, on the FTC or CFPB's website. It's a standard notice. You have to send those three things. Next, what happens? And all this time, keep in mind, you haven't under the, uttered the words, rescinded or rejected or disqualified, right? You basically just said, here's some information, take a look at it, okay? That notice will say a number of things. One of the things it will say as a pre-adverse notice is that you, um, based on the content of the report, you're reviewing their application and now that they have a copy of the background check report, take a look at it and if there's anything that looks inaccurate or is incomplete, contact the background check company that did it. Here's their contact information. Um, and all that is included in the pre-adverse notice. This gives them a chance to look at the report and make sure that the decision that you're about to make is going to be based on accurate information, right? Because if you make a decision and it's not even their background, it's not even their their record, or they, their dates on it are wrong, then that's going to that's what lands you in potential hot water. Okay. I want to be very explicit about employers not using the phrase rescinding an offer. Okay. Please, please, if you, get, if you walk away with nothing else from today's presentation, understand that this is really important because we see so many lawsuits um, arising out of this area alone where there is premature um, adverse action and the employers don't follow the correct steps. Okay? So don't say that you know, you're rejected. Give them a copy of the report. Give them the pre-adverse notice. Give them a summary of their rights. Give them a minimum of five days. Right? so that they can contact the CRA or the background check company, okay? And if after five days you hear nothing from them, then you can make your final hiring decision, whether you want to hire or not to hire. And that's when you send the final adverse notice, okay? The, the Fair Credit Reporting Act is silent on how long an employer has to keep a job open. Um, 
so you have no obligation of saying, well, I've got to hire really quickly and you know, this person is disputing, it's taking a month. You have no obligations there about having to keep that job open. Um, but you do have an obligation to give them the notices that the, and, and the reports that they're allowed access to and to give them a chance to get back to you if information is not correct on their report. Okay? One of the things that you can do to expedite that five days is to deliver it, um, not through snail mail, but let's say you can give it to them in person if they're there in your office, or potentially you can email it in a digital form um, as long as it's secure. Okay? Okay, so we're going to move forward very quickly with the state laws affecting screening. Um, so what we just covered are your federal obligations under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and now we're going to talk about some of the laws you should be aware of when you are running background checks. Um, but these are state laws, if you will. Okay, so understand that beyond the Fair Credit Reporting Act, some states have their own consumer reporting laws, and it may be even more restrictive, right? So the federal laws are typically considered the federal floor, the most essential or basic level of um, consumer protection. Sometimes those laws apply to the consumer reporting agency, again, the background check firm. Sometimes it um, applies to the end user, in this case, the employer. Sometimes it applies to both entities. Um, you just have to be aware of the statute. Beyond that, there are state EEO regs that can affect your employer in terms of what they can consider in the hiring process. Can you consider non-conviction? Can you consider convictions beyond seven years? Um, these are all very specific to a state. And then, one of the things that I want to point out to you is sometimes when you talk to an applicant and they say, oh, I have this conviction from 10 years ago and I have this arrest or you know, this non-conviction from three years ago and they're disclosing all this information to you, so you have now an expectation of what you're going to get back when the background check company runs the report. But when you actually get the report, everything looks clear. What's that behind that discrepancy? Potentially, it's this, a scenario whereby the background check company cannot legally report to you certain um, records that it's uncovered because there are limitations to that state. So if you're in a state or if that in individual is coming out of the state or resides in a state that has protections, um, because of those prohibitions or restrictions, they may not be able to report to you certain criminal history information. So be aware of that. That may be behind the discrepancy. Um, I want to point out to you a growing trend in a restriction when it comes to credit check report usage, and then a big surge in ban-the-box laws. Okay? What exactly is the ban-the-box movement? It refers to legislation, or sometimes city ordinances, that um, prohibits the entry uh, into criminal history on the employment application. So in other words, you're talking about that, have you ever been convicted of a crime box, check box, that you see in applications? And this is a movement to defer asking that question um, until you meet with the individual and until you know um, their qualifications and their experience and then to give them a foot in the door, if you will, um, and then you wouldn't pose that until the actual interview phase or following the interview phase when you've made a um, conditional offer of employment. We're seeing that at this point, it's in the Band the Box movement, it's in 50 states. Um, I'm sorry, more than 50 state and local governments have enacted the ban-the-box measure. So it's growing rapidly in terms of its um, um, support. And then the provisions for ban-the-box, um, they may exist in your, in your state um, at the city level, at the state level, at the county level. So be aware if you are affected by it as an employer. Okay? Now, when it comes to credit check usage, understand that there is an ongoing trend here as well to restrict employers' use of credit checks. Currently, no states um, prohibit employers from using credit checks, nor is there a prohibition on the federal level. But there are restrictions, meaning that we don't want to, we wouldn't, 
want to encourage employers to be abusive and to use it when it's inappropriate. Um, and these are the states that currently have laws in the books. So what are some best practices for an employer if you're in a state that doesn't have a restriction or um, in your law? What I would recommend is that maybe you consider adopting in your own policy um, a practice that is similar to a state that has a restriction because this is an ongoing trend that we recognize. Okay? And the reality is that you shouldn't be running background checks when there is no job relatedness. You know? um, the fear was that employers were using it on a widespread basis or at least that was you know, some of the um, arguments that someone would run a, a company would run a background check that includes a credit check on every applicant no matter the position. You know whether it had to do with money or not, or um, you know access to to um, sensitive information, and so you know these governments um, and legislators were trying to put the reins on on this practice. So make sure that your policy reflects that. Next, as someone ordering back credit checks, if you will, make sure you know how to interpret the report and make sure you know how to treat the credit report results. Very similar to criminal history. Okay. Again, in your policy, determine who makes the ultimate decision. Um, there, again, needs to be a forum for dialogue with the applicant if there is negative information that could lead you to make a negative hiring decision. And then lastly, you want to document any rationalization behind your policy. Um, and again, document any individual adverse decisions. Okay. So that's what I have here for credit checks. Be aware um, that the EUC is going to continue to focus here as well. Now lastly, um, I kind of breezed through that, those last few because I knew that we were kind of winding down. But I, I put quite a bit of information before you um, when it comes to you know, your basic policy, when it comes to the EUC, and then the FTC slash CFPB, all these regulators. So that's a lot of information. But the most important thing that you have to do um, within compliance and HR is to document all that in a policy, in a comprehensive one, so that you can establish um, not only consistency of practice and, and policies, but that it helps you from a defensibility standpoint. It also helps you from an auditing um, standpoint as well to ensure that everyone in your organization um, is doing, doing it by the books because that's very important. Okay? So let's take a look at what we need to include in our HR training policy. Um, review HCR, your SCRA duties, excuse me. Identify very explicitly any prohibited actions and practices, things that, that your organization should not be doing. Again, we talked about blanket policies, blanket exclusions, so on and so forth. Okay, identify those key decision makers and escalation points. Um, incorporate the EEOC enforcement best practices very explicitly in your policy. Okay? Identify state laws that affect you as an employer, because you may be operating out of multiple states. Um, as just a suggestion, I think adopting you know tools like checklist strategies um, that will help streamline and make more efficient your process for background checks because you can kind of check off items and ensure that everything gets um, conducted. Now, it's, I'm going to pause briefly because this is I think we're at the end of it here. Um, but just know that when we talk about litigation or investigation, it can start really, really easily and expand really rapidly and become very invasive. What it comes down to is this. If you make a negative hiring decision, you know, an individual who is disgruntled or unhappy with that decision can easily file a complaint with the EEOC or the FTC. Now, because the EEOC has been so aggressive in its enforcement and investigation, that can quickly expand. Um, it can, you know, just based on that one 
complaint of someone not receiving a job, they can say, well, we want to see um, what you've been doing in terms of your policy. We want to see the last five years of your background check decisions. You know, anyone you've rejected, we want to see your, a copy of your background check, um, of your application and then background check release forms, and then we want to see all the outcomes. Um, so the investigation is going to be very, very invasive, potentially, and it can start from something uh, as simplistic as a negative decision. But if you can prove from the front end that you engage in these practices like individualized assessment, that you have a very strong documented policy and that you've trained your staff, you are in a much better position to be able to, to stop that investigation at that point. Okay? Um, so what are some key takeaways before we conclude? Have a background check policy that's written. Okay, I'm restating the obvious here. That's what's going to help you um, of the utmost. Engage as an overall practice. Engage the applicants or employees. Give them a voice, if you will. Don't shut them off. And ensure that they can talk to you um, about the decision that you're going to make that affects their employment. Okay? Have an understanding of your legal duties, understanding of what your responsibilities are under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, under your state laws, under the EEOC regs. And then lastly, I'm going to reiterate this because I see it all the time. When you get negative information back on your background check report, do not say the offer is rescinded. Remember, it's a two-step process. Follow through, and you'll be in good hands. So that's what I have for you today, and I'm going to um, keep the slide up with my contact information. I really thank you for your time. Um, you know, feel free to contact me if you have any questions. And again, I'd like to thank um, Dr. Jill Brooks, and um, have a great afternoon. Well, thank you so much, Vu. Um, that was an incredible presentation. Uh, if you have any questions for her, please use the contact information on the screen. If you have other questions, please feel free to contact us on our website, 1sthcc.com. Thank you very much and have a great day.